um, yeah, here we go. So I hope it, it transcribes well uh, live. It seems like it is doing it. So um, uh, the first um, question, not question, but talking point I have is in my writings and, and talks, uh, I have proposed a broad-based political and social alliance building model that I have called Second Circle. It includes the so-called moderate left and moderate right based upon ordinary people's lifestyle and belief system. Um, as I have come to the conclusion that the left-right divide is largely artificial and, and outdated. My experience is that there are many more similarities than differences among the 99% and there is a way to create harmony across the spectrum, a strong united force of the working class people and families that is, um, that has the power to defeat the ruthless center that is the ruling classes in places like USA here, India and UK and other places also. Of course, the far left and far right will never come together, in my opinion. Just the same way fanatic religious groups, extremist groups would never come together. But if we unite, then they will lose their own base if the moderates can be brought together. So this is a statement, and I need your thoughts as always. Uh, given the crises we are faced with, especially climate crisis, health crisis, and economic crisis, among many others, uh, isn't it only wise that we find commonalities rather than differences and work together? Well, I think we can say this. Either the kind of thing that you're suggesting will succeed or else it'll be the end of organized human life on earth and in the near future. I mean, we're at a crisis point, uh, can't deny it. And in the issue of climate change, we're reaching a point where tipping points are coming very close ominously close when you hit a tipping point doesn't mean everybody dies but it means we're past the point where you can do anything about it it means that what's already the poisons already in the atmosphere are enough so that they're gonna accelerate and lead on to undermining of human life take say india all of south asia I mean, all of South Asia is just going to become unlivable if this tendency continues, literally unlivable. Uh, then what happens? India and Pakistan are nuclear powers. They're going to be fighting over the diminishing water resources. A uh, couple of million people uh, in the plains of Bangladesh, nobody will survive the rising water levels. I mean, just unimaginable. It's, uh, you know, people think it's bad here with the storms. I mean, it's nothing like most of the third world. Same in the Middle East, Africa. Uh, nowhere to go. And 
this holds for the great powers, United States, Russia, China, going to have to accommodate, but it also for the people of the world, just going to have to rise up together, say this is a final crisis, got to get together and meet it. Well, is it impossible? Actually, what you said about uh, extremist religious groups rang a bell for me. The most important popular movement in my lifetime rarely gets discussed. It's the Central America Solidarity Movement. This was remarkable. It's the first time in the history of imperialism that people from the imperial state not only protested the terror, violence, and atrocities, but help them and offer them whatever protection a white face could offer and stayed with them through the worst of the terror. It's never happened before. Nobody ever dreamt of it before. I mean, during the Vietnam War, nobody went to a Vietnamese village to try to help them. French and Algeria, you know, there was protest, but nobody went to an Algerian village to try to help out. Well, who were these people? A lot of them were evangelical Christians. I mean, from I, gave, I remember giving talks in Midwest churches, uh, rural Maryland, places like that, where people knew all about Central America because they were going up and back. And they were dedicated. That's evangelical Christians, you know. I mean, uh, when I was in Nicaragua, once the, my closest friend there was the, believe it or not, one of the leading Jesuits in Central America. They, I stayed in the Jesuit house, in fact. Uh, he was, uh, um, he took me to a, we traveled, he took me to a poor village where there was a, there was a group of nuns from the most reactionary, uh, Catholic, uh, um, what, order, just way far on the right. The mother superior was going around to, uh, peasant houses to try to convince the people to get vaccinations. They were afraid if this foreign white man comes in, I want to stick a needle into you. They don't want that stuff, you know. And uh, they had actually gotten the peasants to get together to work to build a well for the first time. I mean, this is the most reactionary Catholic order of nuns. Well, can people get together? Yeah, as soon as you have something meaningful they can. You can see it, you always, you see it through the whole history of labor organizing. So you have these ethnic groups who are at each other's throats. You know, the Italians want to kill the, uh, the Greeks and uh, you know, they all want to kill the blacks and so on. They start organizing in the, in the industrial working, say CIO organizing. They all come together. They have a common goal. It's been a history of organizing for years. You have a 
you know, ethnic community where the people, multi-ethnic community where people don't talk to each other and get a couple of mothers together to try to see if they can get a traffic light for the kids to cross to school. They work together, you know, it's a, I mean, I, I don't think it's utopian dream. I've seen it happen too often. Yes. Um, yeah, and that is that is why I um, prize um, your words so much because you not only you are one of the top, you know, like for the lack of a better term, uh, uh, a guiding light for us uh, from an intellectual point of view, but you've also worked on the ground for a very long time, which is like an unbelievably rare combination. And that is why, you know, based on my little experience to work on the ground, both with the immigrants and then with the electrical workers union and some other unions here in New York City, um, and also in India, I, I have very, very rarely I've come across somebody who can say that they have both a, a very high class intellectual prowess combined with practical experience working on the ground. So that is why I personally, I cherish your, your words so much more, uh, because they really come from your very long, uh, real life experience, both here in America and around the world. Uh, so I really want to thank you for being there for us. Uh, I will always say that, you know, uh, this is something that comes straight from my heart. Um, when I talked about extremist uh, religious groups, I was, you know, basically thinking of <laughs> a place like India, where uh, it's like a very impossible situation right now with this far right wing fanatic, you know, Hindu uh, supremacist group RSS and their uh, political offshoot BJP and student wing ABVP and all that, you know, and you know that I was deeply involved with them, uh, before I came out and start, started writing against them. Um, so that, that statement really came from there, you know, in Bangladesh, uh, on the other hand, uh, fanatic Islamists, extremists there, basically you know taking over particularly the particularly the rural communities and it's a, a very difficult situation even 20 years ago 30 years ago if you see old pictures from bangladesh you, you would see you know women muslim women are just walking around without the hijab and they were so you know liberal and open and everything and now it is a, forget it it's a totally different story it would be hard pressed to find a single uh, muslim woman without the hijab especially in the rural areas so uh it's a very very difficult situation and i don't know what's really going to happen especially in south asia 5 years 10 years down the road because if these people Modi and BJP return to power in 2024 in, in the next parliamentary election, then chances are that they are going to completely destroy whatever democracy is left out there. Um, and I've been writing about it, talking about it all the time. Uh, 
the other other um, uh, thing that I wanted to bounce off with you really uh, is uh, the little terminology that I came up with that I call now journalism of exclusion, uh, which is that, you know, I mean, I don't really have to explain that to you, but I think I have told you about this. Uh, it's really a rejoinder uh, on manufacturing consent. Um, here I show that corporate media have created a model where they find time and space to include news and discussions, trivial news and discussions, always, almost always, that they like and purposefully bypass and exclude those that are controversial, unpopular, or not profit-making. Any news and discussion that they do are based on sale, profit, and rating these days. And those that are liked by their owners and advertisers. Therefore, whether it is politics, economics, or movies, or games, or reporting on the war in Ukraine, uh, or any other international affairs for that matter, reasoning is blind or superficial on corporate media. Most people do not understand how media works. And therefore, as you have said many times over they don't know that they don't know. So I I need your uh, words to find support for this um, little term that I came up with, journalism of exclusion. And I really want to flesh out on this uh, concept in the coming days. I think that's very important. Media education should be part of everyone's uh, learning experiences and uh, intellectual life part of the system of self-defense against uh, constant propaganda distortion, deceit which uh, com- was constantly coming from uh, the sectors of power I mean, you can see the United States is an interesting example because it's, by comparative standards, a very free country. Uh, but uh, so therefore, it's quite interesting to see how it works. And in fact, I think what we see is that in countries like the United States, propaganda is more sophisticated, more extensive than it is in States where you can beat people over the head with a with a cudgel. In fact, they just some very interesting examples of this. So, uh, for example, in back in the 1970s, there was a study of uh, uh, Russia compared with Western countries. Where do people get their news? Well, Russia was a totalitarian state, uh, but a sort of a declining one. There was uh, incompetent totalitarianism. So people were blocked by censorship from getting foreign news. But it was so corrupt that people could find their way around it. And there were some studies done by Russian research centers, government studies uh, published, they're published in the West. They showed that 
an astonishing number of Russians were getting their news from BBC and Voice of America. Huge number, great majority, even working class people. The reason is they simply distrusted anything that's appearing in Pravda. Why should I believe those lies? They're so crude and obvious, I'm not going to pay attention. So I'll find a way around the censorship. Uh, some is that illegal publications being read very widely because people are looking for something else. You compare it with the United States, nothing. I mean, the number of Americans who would tune into a foreign broadcast is minuscule. Nobody even think of it. And the reason is the media give you the impression that they are giving all points of view. In fact, they encourage debate, encourage controversy within a very fixed framework. You go one millimeter outside that framework, you're killed. You know? So a reader says, look, every point of view is being uh, discussed. Why do I have to look anywhere else? It's pretty open. That's sophisticated propaganda. You don't need it in a totalitarian state where if worse comes to worst, you can use force. I think that's quite generally the case. And that's the kind of thing that people have to be educated about. They have to learn to think through. And there, there are kind of rules of thumb. So, for example, if you have any controversial issue and everybody agrees you know something's wrong. Can't have everybody agreeing on a controversial issue. So you look at it, you find that it's probably a lie. Interesting case involving it just days ago. There's a, a lot of triumphalism about the fact that Modi and his meeting with uh, Putin and Samarkand practically broke relations with Russia, opposed the war, you know, insisted that, you know, real break in relations. I took the trouble of looking up the transcript, the the government, India government transcript of his words. It was practically an ode to Putin. They took six words. He started off his talk by saying, we all know that we want the war to end. Those are the words that were picked. Then he goes on to say, our ties with Russia are deep and profound. They're getting better. We want to work together. You know, uh, practically a love story. All of that was cut out. Well, when you see everyone uh, with the, uh, triumphalism about finally India's breaking with Russia. First thing you do is look. Nothing can be that simple. What you usually find out is this is the opposite. You know, this happened over and over. So there are, that people have to be protected. Yeah, so true. And, um, you know, like in India, <laughs> what is happening, it's, it's like really very uh, bizarre uh um you know on one hand the administration the modi administration is 
totally destroying any iota of, of uh, socialism, whatever remote uh, so- socialism was left from the Congress government, you know, and completely privatizing it and um, uh, like uh, uh, the, they're, they're breaking down the, the railway system and giving it up to some of the biggest, richest billionaires, you know, that's how uh, uh, much privatization is going on. They are destroying the pension system, perhaps under the dictates of IMF and World Bank, you know, as a part of their structural adjustment program that nobody knows and nobody talks about, you know, things like that. And on the other hand, uh, because they are also, you know, like moving very fast, down the road to uh, fascism and, and totalitarianism, they are supporting another totalitarian uh, government and, uh, you know, uh, a, a dictator like like Putin. So it's like really a very strange combination of of both, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> so that is going on. And, and, you know, the media is completely sold out, corporate media in India, and there is hardly any discussion uh, on 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 the other side, and there is practically on media there is practically no dissent. The Hindu, do you get any open discussion in the Hindu still? Well, a little bit maybe, but you know they are they are, they have also changed. I mean, you know, like and and now what's happening is that some of these richest billionaires, um, uh, India now has, and you know, media brags about that that India now has two super rich billionaires that are Ambani and Adani. These are the two groups, uh, two families. They have now featured on the top 10 richest people on earth. So that is like really that many Indians, they are, they are like really very proud of, you know, uh, not knowing that they are completely destroying, you know, India's economy and it is becoming another, you know, like a Koch brothers type regime um, in India. And that's exactly what they are doing. They have bought up media after media after media. Uh, talking about Hindu, there is a parallel um, semi-independent uh, television network called NDTV. And now Adani, uh, one of the richest billionaires, uh, has... Uh, uh, staked uh, a claim of 30% or 40% of their share. So if they get that kind of share of NDTV, then basically, you know, NDTV is going to be another big mouthpiece of uh, the Modi government and RSS and BJP. So this is how it is It is, is destroying a democracy and free speech in India. One channel, one network, one newspaper, one magazine at a time. I don't know if I ever told you my experience with Indian media when I went there about 15 years ago, I guess. I was spending a month in India and then Pakistan. And, uh, you know, Iqbal Ahmed, my old friend. So uh, I told him I was going. He told me I would find something surprising. I would find that the media in Pakistan are more free and open than the media in India, which yeah, seems exactly, impossible. exactly. 
It is true. Even even today. But when I came back and I told him that he burst out laughing, he said, in Pakistan, I'm reading the English media, Dawn. Because nobody reads that except the small group of intellectuals. That is true. The totalitarian version. He said, if you looked at the Urdu press, be a poet, you know? Yeah, yeah, you are, you are so right. And my obviously my knowledge comes from, you know, reading the English language uh, newspapers in Pakistan. But I know a little bit of Urdu because I know Hindi and they're very similar. And I go to here in Brooklyn, we live in a very uh, unique place. On one side, we have Coney Island Avenue, which they called Little Pakistan, with all these Pakistani restaurants and garages and and you know uh, hair hair salons and and all that. And on the other side, we have uh, Church Avenue and McDonald's Avenue, just like ten minutes apart, parallel to each other. And there we have a, a little Bangladeshi uh, community with thirty thousand, forty thousand Bangladeshi people, and we are living in between on this little strip. So we are like really sandwiched between India, I mean, Pakistan and Bangladesh. So, you know, so that is where we live. So we we go to those uh, places and we, I watch the Urdu language uh, television from time to time and and absolutely right. Very, 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 um, you know, like a, a conformist kind of news preaching the choir uh, for the regime, uh, whoever is in power. So you are right. Yeah, the English language uh, media is different. Yeah, but who who reads English language newspaper in Pakistan? Just like India, a very very minuscule uh, fraction of the total population. <laughs> um, I I just uh, just want to get back. I mean, on uh, piggyback on what you just said about uh, people's lack of knowledge about other countries and and their systems and their media. And I have experienced that firsthand when I taught uh, my thousands of labor union brothers and sisters uh, for 14 seasons. And I love them and they love me, no question about it. But at the same time, the lack of knowledge is just astounding. Uh, I have talked about history. I have talked about science. I have talked about media, of course. Uh, human rights, uh, private prison here in the United States. And every time I talked about it, then there would be some like, you know, frowns and, and raised eyebrows. Uh, and then, of course, I would give them time to do their own research in small groups. And then after they came back uh, from their breakout rooms, uh, their, you know, their, their, uh, there would be a totally different face. Uh, and I've seen that all along. Uh, one of the things that I told them is that uh, uh, about their knowledge or lack of knowledge uh, about the Second World War. Uh, and I told them that um, uh, how much ever, uh, you know, we may despise and hate uh, Stalin and, and his government, uh, there is no question that, you know, the Soviet Union actually played a very big part to defeat, uh, you know, Nazi Germany during the Second World War. And they are like, what? Huh? It was the German forces were almost all on the Eastern Front. Yeah. About 80% of them. Yeah. That's where the war was. 
Yeah, exactly. And and these people, you know, they're like good people, but they're like, what are you talking about? Russia didn't play any part. They're communists. I mean, it's very strange the, to see. And, and the reason I'm mentioning that is to, you know, follow up on what you just said, that uh, people have absolutely no uh, knowledge uh, uh, of any place outside of the United States. And, and one of the reasons, without blaming them, is that the media has created this uh, false impression that you are actually getting 100% accurate and comprehensive news uh, from all over the world. So, you know, like they simply do not know how much propaganda uh, media carries with them here in the United States. And they think that it's a free press and, and democratic uh, press and, and there cannot be anything better than this. So that is something that I have faced with all the time. Um, I would like to, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, it's a very insular country. Insular country. People don't know anything about the outside. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That is part of the reason you can kind of understand. It's a huge country, homogeneous. Uh, You can travel 3,000 miles from Brooklyn to Los Angeles, it looks like the same country. Yeah. If you're almost anywhere else, it's impossible. You see different cultures, different societies, uh, different languages, you know. Exactly. Yeah, even, in, you know, I mean, I'm not even talking about a country of India. I'm talking about a small state like my state, West yeah. Bengal, and you travel 100 miles or 50 miles any direction and you are like in a different world. (laughs) People are speaking Bengali, but they're using a different dialect and people are, uh, you know, people even look different. (laughs) The geography is different. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's like a very fascinating country. And, you know, you talk about diversity. I mean, where is diversity here in the United States? I mean, you know, you get the same McDonald's and KFC and Burger King and Coke anywhere you go. (laughs) Um, I I just had a a quick question, and and this is my (laughs) only intellectual question, if you will, (laughs) is that uh, every time I, I use the word intellectualism in front of you, I'm like, oh, my God, I cringe. But I'll say it anyways. Uh, you know, in way back in uh, 1971, in a, in a conversation which I picked up on YouTube uh, with Michel Foucault, uh, you talked about people's inherent creativity. And in one of our uh, previous discussions, you articulated about the purpose of education critical thinking and not learning by rote and things like that. Uh, Foucault, of course, has always talked about the relationship between power and knowledge and how they are used as a form of social control through various societal institutions. How in the present time, given how much more powerful corporate establishments are through media and political institutions today uh, running the democratic quote unquote uh, democratic governments where creativity is being destroyed in the name of productivity and development. Uh, People like us, how can we uh, tell our students and followers that a society of creative people 
and thinking minds is still possible is is a creative and free human race uh, uh against all odds today uh, still possible what do you think about that i don't think it's hard i mean take young children the young children all they want to know is answers to questions they're constantly asking why why they they drive you crazy with their curiosity then you say you sit in rows they're taught to repeat what they learn you teach them you, sh- you say here's the lesson you got to memorize it then return it it's got much worse in the last 20 or 30 years administrations incidentally all of them the model is what they call teaching to test you've got to have a kind of a business model where you have a fixed curriculum students have to study it then they get a test they have to answer the answer then they go on to the next thing can't explore can't inquire can't create uh i mean i've talked to teachers who tell me you know i was teaching a lesson about something and some little kid came up afterwards and said she was interested in this topic what did she do to look into it and the teacher had to tell her can't do it you have to pass the test she didn't say it or it'll be doctored but uh say to, to make a rigid controlled people who can't think can't inquire not the all of their inquisitiveness out of their heads it doesn't have to be like that educational systems can foster creativity i mean you know i taught little kids when i was a graduate student working but you you can do it you can make it exciting make them search for things themselves work together projects and so on and let them it, and uh, it doesn't mean anything goes you can structure the curriculum but uh, let children adults do find out actually in graduate school one of the best math teachers i ever had fine mathematician would uh, we were happen to be in a modern algebra course he would come uh, come into the class uh, write something on the blackboard and say uh, is that a theorem and then the class would be efforts which he would of course guide to an extent see if we could work out a proof for it or else refute it well that's how you learn to be a mathematician not by repeating what was in the book and we all know you can take a course like that and get an a in two weeks later if you got what the course was about because so you were doing this regurgitating information and not not learning anything it doesn't have to be like that and uh, it's a, i think it's a purposeful effort to do population make them obedient and passive you know one in fact if you look back there were the, back in the early 70s 
there are very interesting documents that came out, uh, both on the liberal and the conservative side, people, elite groups who were concerned about the activism of the 1960s, say, we got to stop then. One of the things they said, I'm actually quoting from the liberal side, we have to improve the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young. They're not doing their job, not indoctrinating people properly. That's why you see these protests, these concerns for rights and all this kind of stuff, which is disruptive. So let's make it more rigid and disciplined on the right. It's much more extreme. But I think those are deeply important points. In fact, right now there's strong effort to eliminate the public education system entirely. That's a right-wing mantra now. We don't need public education. Send everybody to a religious school and something else where they'll be indoctrinated properly. Yeah, it is It is so sad and so scary. And um, I have lived here in the United States for 37 years. Uh, when I first came way back when in uh, 1985, uh, of course, I came from a place like India where, you know, the education system is like so uh, rigid and so colonial. Uh, and, and of course we had some good teachers. I mean, no question about it. There were some great teachers, but the, the, the entire education system was so structured and so completely devoid of any element of critical thinking. Uh, critical thinking would actually be discouraged and questioning and challenging would be punished. That is the education system that I, I grew up in. So, of course, when I first came to the United States, it was like, uh, you know, like really a breath of fresh air compared to what I went through in my childhood and my young adulthood. Uh, and and I, I have been writing about it in my uh, uh, Bengali memoir, how, you know, much I uh, uh, started loving the new education system where teachers, or some teachers at least, they invite you to question, invite you to challenge, and instill the element of critical thinking in their teaching. So that was that was my my you know like uh, 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 how I like yeah. But then slowly, slowly, I, I as as I as I grew older and as I started understanding the system here, media, academia, the political parties, and I, I discovered that. Uh, of course, compared to India, there is more freedom and uh, space for critical thinking and all that. But still, it does not go beyond a certain limit. As you have said many times, that there is this fake, uh, you know, like concept of free speech and fake, fake concept of democracy and free thinking because everything is happening within uh, two blindfolds. And so what you are seeing is like totally within that tunnel uh, vision and you're not being able to see anything that is happening beyond uh, beyond that spectrum. So that is something that I have realized slowly but surely. Uh, uh, and now 
uh, right wing is so powerful and they're trying to destroy the public education system altogether here in America and in India. Same thing is happening, totally destroying any kind of free thinking, any kind of, uh, you know, like uh, um, an academic system where people would be invited to be a part of uh, 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 questioning and, and challenging and, and be able to learn controversial things without being afraid uh, about it. Uh, this is an, an intellectualism, the word itself, intellectual, is like being completely derided in India by not just by the right wing, but by many, many millions of ordinary people who simply think that intellectuals are just like they're either anti-national or communist or simply wackos, for the lack of a better term. Uh, in this climate, um, here I get a chance to speak with Noam Chomsky, one of the most important intellectuals uh, and uh, in in human history. I need to hear from you what you think about the future of a creative mind and intellectualism per se. We all know the answer. We know how to inspire, how to encourage the native curiosity uh, efforts to learn, uh, efforts to create it's natural to people. You don't beat it out of them, it stays. And uh, uh, we know methods of doing that. It's not a big secret. Uh, um, we, we experience it with our children, with uh, um, our students. Uh, if you encourage their native commitment to inquiry and discovery and creativity and uh, uh, adding to understanding and so on, just encourage it, it then flourishes. You beat it down by rigid frameworks, then you can turn them into passive, obedient creatures. It's uh, as old as history. The the problem is that people like us, you know, like, um, honestly, few and and far between, uh, you know, many of us want to do something uh, constructive and meaningful in that regard. But we simply do not have the uh, financial means or, you know, celebrity status or political, uh, you know, like a power to make it happen. It's almost a tautology. We're confronting power. Why should power support us in our efforts to confront and undermine it? So you're always on the outside. Also through history. Yeah, but do, don't, do you, do you not see uh, a sea change in the social environment where individualism is, has taken over so deeply and any sense of togetherness, any sense of sense of society and collectivism is being pushed back? I think that's a particular feature of the last 30 or 40 years. 
there has been a, an intensive class war since the 1980s to try to establish private power, corporate power, atomize the population, separate people from one another, uh, eliminate any sense of collective action. I mean, take public schools. One of the reasons that the powerful want to eliminate public schools is that they create communities. So you send your kids to the local public school, kids walk to school together, they make friends, they play afterwards together, they go visit each other's houses, the parents get to know each other, and pretty soon you find them, I'm actually talking from experience, you find them doing joint activities like let's get together and make a playground for the kids and yeah. pretty soon you have community activities and collective things. It's terrible. People have to be atomized, separated, not talk to anyone else. Total subject to power. They get rid of the public schools. This kid will go to a religious school over here. This one will go to something over there and then never and then don't don't ever play in the streets, send them to watch video games or organize activities, but make sure that you have atomization. That's actually Karl Marx talked about it in a different context back in the when he criticized the autocratic governments of Europe in the nineteenth century. He said what they want to do is turn people into a sack of potatoes, just alone, isolated, easy prey to power systems, propaganda, and don't talk to each other and so on. That's why if you look back, when Reagan and Thatcher launched this neoliberal war, first thing they did was attack labor unions. Yeah. Because labor unions are the means of defense against class war. So they understood or their advisors understood to be get rid of them. So people have no defense. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, uh, you don't have to go uh, any farther than here in the United States and, and India. And uh, I've worked here with the labor unions for a long time and, uh, quickly found out that um, here the labor density is now less than 9% uh, where it was uh, about 40% back in the uh, 40s and, and 50s. Even even during the Eisenhower uh, government, uh, labor union was was, was quite strong. Uh, and, and, and in India... Uh, uh, Not only that, Eisenhower supported them. So, yeah. Eisenhower's position was uh, anyone who opposes the right of workers to organize doesn't belong in our political system. I mean, now he sounds like a flaming radical. Exactly. Exactly. And most people simply do not know when I, you know, have, I've told them, you know, and showed them graph how uh, the labor density went up. Uh, and then, you know, starting from 1975, and particularly uh, since uh, Reagan uh, government here started climbing down, and now it is like a minuscule 9% or less than 9% uh, 
labor density here in the United States. In India, I traveled uh, to a number of places and talked to labor unions, national unions, and they said the same story. It's like 7% labor density in a country like India. So United States and India being the two largest uh, quote-unquote democratic countries, they have decimated <laughs> labor unions, the, the corporate powers. So you are you are so right on the dot that they have that is the first thing that they try to do is destroy labor unions so that there is no organized political Not just anymore. There's consequences. Wages haven't risen for forty years, real wages. I mean there's been economic growth but goes into very few pockets. There's even estimates of it. The Rand Corporation did a study of transfer of wealth to the top 1% of the population, $50 trillion in the last 40 years. That's class war with a vengeance. Yeah. I showed them a graph once uh, that uh, how the, you know, uh, wage uh, graph actually changes. Like you go from 0% to 90 uh, 95% of the population and the graph, wage graph, wealth graph moves very, very, creeps up very slowly. And suddenly you hit the 0.1% and then it's like so, such a huge, unbelievable spike that you cannot even fit the graph within the boundaries of the room. You, you have to, have to put columns side by side to show how unbelievably uh, tall uh, that graph is, that column is, because otherwise it is going to go through the roof of the building. That is how outrageous and scandalous it is. Uh, but, you know, most people simply do not, when I show them, they keep telling me, or showed them rather, for 14 seasons, they kept telling me, how come we never knew about this? Uh, that is their perpetual question. You know, so... Um, I don't mean to take too much of your time. Uh, I, I hope we can come back and, and talk some more. I need your blessing sure. so that I can, I can publish this okay, talk. And I, I hope okay. to come back and talk to you more Good. in the coming years. And I, I wish you the best of your health. Talk to you later. Thank you so much, Noam.